Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at Banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at Banyan.com. Please subscribe follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Branches of Wisdom, the Banyan Books video and audio podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee, and I'm really excited today. We're joined by Brian Thomas Swim, Ph.D., now, before we get to his formal introduction, Banyan Books acknowledges that although we have people who join us from all around the world for these live stream events, the physical location of Banyan Books and Sound is on the traditional and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Our guest today, Brian Thomas Swim, received his PhD from the Department of Mathematics at the University of Oregon in 1978 for work in gravitational dynamics. He brings the context of story to our understanding of the 14 billion year trajectory of the universe. Such a story he feels will assist in the emergence of a flourishing earth community. For three decades as a professor in the philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness program at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, he has taught evolutionary cosmology to graduate students in the humanities. He is the co-creator and host of the Emmy award-winning PBS documentary, Journey of the Universe, and co-author of the companion book of the same title. He works with the Human Energy Project, to produce the popular YouTube series, The Story of the Noosphere. He is also the founder and director of the Center for the Story of the Universe. Dr. Swim is the author of a number of books, including The Hidden Heart of the Cosmos and The Universe is a Green Dragon. He is co-author of The Universe Story, which is the result of a 10-year collaboration with cultural historian Thomas Berry. He's also the co-creator uh, cre of three educational video series, Canticle to the Cosmos, The Earth's Imagination, and The Powers of the Universe. Today, Brian Thomas Swim is with Banyan Books in conversation about his new book, Cosmogenesis, an unveiling of the expanding universe. It's a really fascinating book. And I'll tell you a little bit about it. The understanding that the universe has been expanding since its fiery beginning 14 billion years ago 
and has developed into stars, galaxies, life, and human consciousness, is one of the most significant in human history. It is taught throughout the world and has become our common creation story for nearly every culture. Cosmogenesis is one of the greatest discoveries in human history, and it continues to have a profound impact on humanity. In Cosmogenesis, Swim narrates the same cosmological events that we agree are fact, but offers a feature unlike all other writings on this topic. He tells the story of the universe while simultaneously telling the story of the storyteller. Swim describes how the impact of this new story deconstructed his mind, then reassembled it, offering us a glimpse into how cosmogenesis has transformed our understanding of both the universe and the evolution of human consciousness itself. If you'd like to learn more about today's honored guest and his work, you can visit his website, which is storyoftheuniverse.org. Ladies and gentlemen, a warm banyan welcome for Brian Thomas Swim. Dr. Swim, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Ross. Great to be here. Now, you have a, a, a long connection with the Pacific Northwest, banyans in that area in Vancouver, BC. Can you tell us a little bit about that connection? Uh, sure. Um, uh, my father grew up in uh, Fountain, which is near Lillooet. And, um, you know, he came down and married my mother in Seattle. So I, I grew up uh, in Washington State, but it would always go back to British Columbia. And I have a sister who and brother-in-law living on Vancouver Island. So <laughs> I feel really connected and and. I consider the Northwest, you know, my, my spiritual home. Beautiful. Now you call this book cosmogenesis an auto cosmology saying that it lives in the overlap of two genres. I'm just wondering if you can help our audience understand the context, what that, that means, this auto cosmology. Yeah. You know, the, um, it was a, it was a kind of shock for me. I spent, decades learning the story of the universe. Uh, but I always, on, on a subconscious level, I regarded it as a story about things happening out there. And then um, I realized I was one of those things. In other words, I was evolving along with everything else. So I, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of, I think it's a, it's a, it's a deep perspective in Western civilization that the human uh, is looking out and understanding the world as it is out there and forgetting about the subjectivity that in which we live. So it was, I don't know, it hit me one day and I thought, I, if I'm going to really tell the universe story, I've got to include the story of my own development as a storyteller. Because I, my understanding of the universe in my 20s is different than in my 30s and different than in my 40s. And it's not like one, one decade I was, I was right and the other decade I was wrong. It's, it's that human understanding is always evolving. So to really capture the essence of this cosmic evolution, one has to tell it in, a, in an, evolving way, an evolving way. And so that's what I tried to do, to give that sense of, I'm changing along with everything else and what's going on. That was my orientation. 
Yes. And the, it, it, the story is told wonderfully and that really comes through. Uh, it's, it, it really hey, it's is awesome. an, an amazing story. You, you have a, a, I mean, this is only one like less than 20 year period, 1968 to 1983. Is it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Those are, those are the crucial moments of, um, of, of kind of coming to an understanding that that the story itself was was really deconstructing my mind. I I um I was a different person. The more I learned about the story, I was, I was becoming a different person. So I, I tried to capture that critical period uh, when all that happened. You know, kind of from high school um, up through my first position in the university. One of the interesting things, just to kind of build on that idea of being a different person and how your perspectives change, you, you sort of uh, describe yourself, I mean, as a young man, and this is probably common for many young men, as kind of, I don't know if you use the word arrogant, but sort of uh, that was the idea that you kind of thought you had it figured out in a way. And, and you meet all of these amazing mentors along the way, you know, Dolores and Matthew Fox and Thomas Berry. I'm just wondering if if you can talk a little bit about humility, the humility that you've gleaned over the years through discourse with these other people that have affected you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a great question. I'd, I, <laughs> I I start the book off with that um, with that blow I received from another professor <clears throat> and I I wasn't I didn't think of myself as being arrogant and even if if you knew me back then when I was just fresh out of graduate school and you talked to me I mean I wouldn't come across as arrogant but I really was in an unconscious way I had I had I had just sort of slowly adopted over the years adopted the, the understanding that that science really captured the essence of things, and that, that this was it. It's very much like um, uh, Carl Sagan talked about the different forms of knowledge. There's you know history, philosophy, art, religion, and science, and he would say they're they're all of them are <clears throat> make believe, but but science science was the one true. And I was in that position without really thinking about it. But then, then this by this collision with um, especially a professor from the world of literature, it made me it made me realize that that there's a deep way of understanding the universe that doesn't involve mathematics. It doesn't involve scientific investigation. It's 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 something that we call intuitive or heart centered. And uh, that was, I, I've, I've never stopped uh, pursuing an, an understanding of the universe that drew from both. So that, that really is where I ended up. And even, even to keep to the theme of humility, if you live long enough uh, as a scientist, you live through fundamental changes in our understanding. And, it, and, and so you, 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 you adjust to the idea that science is an evolving enterprise. And I hope it's the case that we're getting better and better. But, but certainly what, what 
any scientist who lives long enough understands is that our, our current understanding is the best we've done and it's all hypothetical, even though it's grounded in empirical detail, it's hypothetical and that it can and most likely will be replaced in certain ways as we evolve further. So humility is that sense of, of uh, knowing that, that we don't arrive at a final fixed knowledge. But in, in a sense, who wants that? It's, it's, so, it's so exciting to be part of an endeavor that is deepening and questioning itself. So <laughs> I went from unconscious um, arrogance to um, a, a joyful humility, Ross, if that makes sense. It, it does. That's wonderful. Hopefully I can uh, absorb some of that in this conversation. Now, <laughs> um, one of the, here, here's a, a, something that might help our audience with a foundational understanding of what you mean by cosmogenesis. So I'm just going to share a quote and then ask you to, to comment. Um, in the opening of the book, you speak about the central theories of contemporary science and you write the following. These theories have enabled us to discover our cosmic genesis, which can be summarized in a single complex sentence. So listen to this sentence, everybody. The universe began 14 billion years ago with the emergence of elementary particles in the form of primordial plasma, which quickly morphed into atoms of hydrogen, helium, and lithium. A hundred million years later, galaxies began to appear, and in one of these, the Milky Way, minerals arranged themselves into living cells that constructed advanced life including evergreen trees, coral reefs, and the vertebrate nervous systems that humans used to discover this entire sequence of universe development. This is, I mean, this is huge. And you go on to say that it's one of, it's got to be one of the 10 most significant ideas in our human history. Yeah. <laughs> Can you build on this concept for our audience to really glean what this cosmogenesis is and what it means? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's just stunning. If you stop for a second and think, I mean, we, we've, we're pretty sure right now that there are at least 2 trillion galaxies in the universe, maybe more, but 2 trillion. And each of these galaxies has around 50 billion stars, you know, and each, and each galaxy has hundreds of billions of planets. And Here's this little speck on one of these planets going around a star. And this little speck has learned to see through time. I mean, it blows my mind. We can't, you know, we, that, to, and to have the confidence that in, in, in some ways we've made, we've, we've sketched out the contours of this, this, vast undertaking. I mean, wow. I, it, 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 I never ceases to amaze me. And this, I mean, you know, you think of um, chimpanzees and humans are 99% identical genetically, 99%. And so you can imagine uh, chimpanzees, you know, every now and then glancing up at the, at the night sky and you know, seeing the twinkling stars and there's a moment of wonder there. But with humans, 
we we became so fascinated by everything that we kept asking questions, asking questions, asking questions, and and exploring. And here we've ended up with this this with a, a consciousness that that embraces the the entire universe, even though we are this little tiny frail creature. So it's I. <laughs> I just, it blows my mind the more I think about it. And it is the, this discovery of that we're inside of a 14 billion year creativity. That, that discovery is on the order, like you mentioned, this is one of the top ideas in human history, but there's almost nothing that, that goes beyond in, in significance any discovery we've made compared to this one, it will, I mean, without doubt, it's going to, over time, without doubt, it is going to transform a humanity as a whole. And it's going to transform the cities. It's going to transform our, our ways of, of governing one another. And so this, I, I feel like with um, Cosmogenesis, I was trying to just take a few little baby steps into uh, what is coming. I mean, this, this vast transformation that's coming that may take a couple centuries to work its way out. But I wanted to just make a couple baby steps into it, do them doing the best I can to invite others to uh, participate. <laughs> I'm looking for others to, to join in this, this quest to understand uh, who we are in a 14 billion year creative event. Um, um, you know, just because of our time, I won't sit too long with that, but, you know, people watching the, the recording of this, feel free to pause at that moment and take it in, um, because it's a lot to take in. One of the things, the through lines in, in the book and in your work that I've seen is that we are, uh, we are the universe becoming aware of itself, looking at itself, and that we're active participants in the creative process that's a continuation in the universe. I want to ask you about, um, in the chapter in the book titled The Nuclear Force in the Santa Cruz Mountains, (laughs) use the story of attraction and falling in love with your eventual wife, uh, Denise Santi, to illustrate the creative impulse of the universe working through attraction of matter and you write the following you say a review of the 14 billion years of universe activity leads to an alarming insight the the universe does not ask for permission when it decides to invade you and use you for its own creative purposes i'm wondering if we can just explore that idea a little bit more there's something greater working through us and the idea of, of free will and choice, where does that come into that? <laughs> <laughs> These deep questions, I love them, but I just, <laughs> I want to approach them with some humility. Those are deep questions. I, you know, as you, as you're, as I'm listening to the question, um, what, what comes to mind is the story. I, I, um, I had this, I had this moment of, um, I was upset 
but I was a, a young professor and um, I'm lecturing away and you know, enjoying my, my life teaching mathematics and physics. And then after, after one of the classes, a student came up and, and said that she um, uh, has changed her major and uh, she was going to major in physics. And, but I, I knew the student, I knew she had been a major, she'd been majoring in music and I'd even gone to one of her concerts. I'd met her parents, you know, she had been working at music for, you know, more than 10 years. Now she's changed her mind. And she said it was because of my class. And I thought, I, I mean, I thought, you know, and on the one hand, I work, you know, hard like all professors do to, to make the material interesting. But I, I don't know if I felt, did I make a mistake? Did I make it so interesting that I, I drew this young woman out of her, her life path? And then, and so I, I mean, I really thought about that. And I, and then I started to wonder about my own life path. <clears throat> and I remember, um, uh, you know, when, when did I set out on this path to understand the universe, especially the large scale structure? And I, I realized that you know, I had good teachers and so forth, but <clears throat> excuse me, the moment that I, the, the moment where I, I think I first became fascinated by the universe was when I was four and I, I had a bed upstairs. I, I grew up in Lakewood, Washington. And I could look through the, the, the window at the, at the night sky. And I, you wouldn't see it a lot because it rains a lot in the Northwest. But every now and then I'd, I'd be there and I'd fall asleep and I'd see these stars. And I became fascinated. Well, and then, but that was a great relief because I, I, in a certain sense, I realized the universe did to me what I did to that student. The universe was, was so intriguing that I was set on a life path way back when I was four. And again, my point was nobody asked me, the universe didn't ask me if this was a good idea. It just swept me up into this life path. And, and I realized that that's, that's how the universe really operates. We, you know, we, we become fascinated. We're drawn in a certain direction way before we have the cognitive ability to evaluate it. We, we can respond to it. We can push away from it. But if, if we release ourselves into it, it, it has set us up on a particular life path. <laughs> so I don't know where free will comes in. I think it, we, can, we can decide to push against what the universe has in mind for us. Uh, or we can choose to um, respond to it and to feel this, this sense of, of destiny. I, I think it's a very common feeling, very, very common that, that we, we were born for a certain path in life. And, and you know, we, we struggle sometimes to find that. But it, even though we have this intuitive feeling of, of a direct commissioning from the universe, it is something that is, that is beyond the current scientific view. But I, but I, that's, that's a moment where I, I think um, 
it's true to say at a heart level, we know we're being called in a certain direction. Do you think that that science is um, finding skillful ways to integrate our our subjective experiences with um, with the scientific method? Is that something you're seeing happening in a in a good way? So now this would be highly speculative, but but my sense is that uh, <clears throat> science has gone through different phases, and so we talk about a Newtonian science. And then we talk about the, the science of, of, of quantum physics, right? And, and we are in a certain, a certain, at a certain mo moment, we're moving into complexity science in a way that was not possible before. So my, my speculation is that um, as we move further into the 21st century and the 22nd century, uh, human experience will become an important component of all science education. And that the that science will be understood as not just as the equations, the formulas, the data, the facts. It will also be understood as, as a pathway uh, for deepening human experience, for deepening human consciousness. So that's, that's how I see uh, science proceeding in the in the future that's wonderful and just to build on that it's a slight offshoot of that question but the idea of um i don't forgive me for not knowing the right scientific terms but the observer principle that the observer impacts what is observed that there, makes a difference that's part of quantum physics is that right yeah exactly yeah so I guess my question then is um, what a lot of healing modalities and, and indigenous ways of knowing or uh, traditional ways of knowing as, as well as modern therapy that uh, if, we're, if we have trauma or our conditioning or our belief systems, they inform how we see the world around us and our relationships and how we relate to it. Is, this, is that something, are you seeing um, people in the scientific community embracing that idea and doing work somatic work or trauma trauma work and that kind of thing to help clear the lens of perception i would say um some of the most creative scientists are moving in that direction at, at the present time uh, they would be a, a minority report but i i think they are they are the future you know there, that's that's the direction we're moving in. The um, <clears throat> just to, just to say one thing about that, one thing would would be um, one of the ways uh, uh, science is is developing that relates to exactly what you said is to recognize the power of relationship. So that in like if you go back to Newtonian science, the um, the focus was on matter being controlled by external laws. But now we're realizing that it's, it's, it's more about relationship. Uh, that that when, we, when, we, when matter ends, moves into relationship, it actually becomes different. Uh, just one example, the, the neutron, one of these elementary particles, the neutron by itself uh, only exists for a few minutes. 
and then it will decay and, and disappear altogether. But, but if you take the neutron and, it, and it's brought into relationship with the proton, that neutron in relationship with the proton can exist for billions of years. It's a different entity in that sense. And so that, I mean, the, uh, some of the traditional ways of healing, I know, I know very little about it, very, very little. So, but one of the traditional ways of healing is to place a person in a deeper relationship with the, the stars, with the rivers, with the, with the forest. And that, that, that by deepening those relationships, um, healing takes place. And I see that as, as something that will be uh, more widely practiced, even by scientists in the future. Well, that's really, really cool to hear. I just want to remind our live audience that we're going to get to as many of your questions as we can in the last 15 or 20 minutes. So please go ahead and, and I see a few have started rolling in. Go ahead and type them into the chat. They're your questions for Dr. Swim and, and we'll attend to those when the time comes. Now, your wife, Denise, uh, sounds like a wonderful human being, uh, the way you describe her in the book. And there's a couple of, of key moments um, that stood out to me in, in your interactions with her that kind of she helped the light go on for you on some certain things. So there's a beautiful scene in chapter six where you're at the beach with Denise and your son, Thomas Ian, and, and you tell Denise, you, you've got this kind of revelation happening in your mind that it's new ideas that create transformation in human beings. But she has a different perspective. She says this, she says, my consciousness has changed. The biggest change was this little guy referring to your son. When I was pregnant, I would pause in odd moments and think, a human being is becoming inside me. Giving birth to Thomas was one of the deepest experiences of my life. That is what changed me. It wasn't an idea. And something shifted inside you in that experience. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. <laughs> that was one of those moments that, that you referred to earlier uh, about humility. I mean, um, <laughs> that was one of the deepest moments of my life. You know, I, ha I had this idea, like you said, I, I, I was just captivated with the idea that if you go back far enough, in uh, in human history, uh, you get to you get to humans that um, you know didn't count. They didn't have mathematics. I mean, uh, some groups on the planet still don't really have the ability or the interest in 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 developing mathematics. <clears throat> Excuse me, but but um, I, we did develop mathematics, and I I was just astounded by the thought of, of that human that came up with the idea of four or the idea of five. You know, it, 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 we, because it's so obvious to us now, it, it seems like nothing, but, but that, was, that was a major leap in cognition that there was, there was this, this idea that connected one group of things to another completely different group. They were some, there was a similarity between them. They both had four members. So I, I was, I got really carried away thinking about, <clears throat> wow, uh, we, what, only, what separates us from earlier humans 
are these ideas that we developed, you know, in, in mathematics and in history and archaeology, all the different ideas of of culture. And so, I was <laughs> I was exclaiming to um, Denise that the only thing that we differ, we have the same anatomy as three hundred thousand years ago, the same brain size. <clears throat> all that we're all that distinguishes us from them are these ideas. And as I was explaining it to her, you know, she reflected on it and then came up with a passage that you read. It wasn't ideas. It was experience. In, in that moment, I, I, I didn't understand completely. I, I knew she was what she was saying was correct, but I, I didn't even know how to understand it. It wasn't <clears throat> until years later when I, when I came upon this amazing philosopher, uh, this, this German-American philosopher, Eric Vogelin, who, who gave a, a powerful theoretical argument for experience, human experience being foundational, not ideas. And I just have to, I just have to mention a, a book that has just come out uh, on this topic. It's called The History of Experience by Wolfgang Leidhold. Wolfgang Leidhold. And, and it, it is, I think it's a, a monumental shift in uh, away from uh, thinking that these abstractions, these ideas are fundamental and realizing that the depths of human experience are the depths of the universe itself. So that that was a, an amazing moment, and it, it took me a long time to fully appreciate what Denise was saying. But it, in in the end, it, it's 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 actually very simple, just human experience. And so I wrote Cosmogenesis uh, as a way of of evoking experience in others, very much so. Yeah, and you've you've done just that. It, it it very much evokes those feelings from me as a reader. That was my experience for sure. It's oh, uh, great to hear, Ross. Yeah, um, I I wanted to ask you about Thomas Berry. Yeah, he played a huge role in your life. Can you just fill our audience in a little bit about how you met him and what your relationship was with him and how he impacted your life? Yeah, I. <clears throat> I met him. I'd, I, I, I was going to this um, this center. It's called the Chinook Learning Community on Whidbey Island, just south of you, Ross. And I, I, uh, they had a little makeshift library, you know, maybe thirty books, and and they they also had, <clears throat> excuse me, they also had a, a little um, newsletter that they published, and I I was there for a couple of days and. I, I picked up this this little newsletter and and I flicked it open and there was this article by someone I'd never heard of, Thomas Berry, and and the article was the new cosmic story, and I was in the middle of of um, you know falling apart as a professor. It just I just I didn't know um, I, I was I was just losing my sense of meaning. Uh, and 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 I, so I had done a lot of thinking, and then I, I was reading this article by Thomas Berry, and it was like I wrote the article. 
but it was it was written better with deeper understanding. <clears throat> but it was it was just it was something so intriguing when he when he when this this person Thomas Berry was speaking of how we're in the moment when a new cosmological story is emerging, and and that every culture um, on the planet back through time had its own cosmological story. And, and all of these were, were of great interest and, and significance, but a new one was emerging. And he was speaking of the, the 14 billion year evolution of the universe. And so I just thought in that moment, I realized <clears throat> uh, that is what I had to do. I had to be part of that, I had to be part of that endeavor. And, and so we moved back to New York and, and he, he introduced me in a, in a deep way to the work of, of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, the, uh, the French paleontologist and Jesuit, who really was the first person to recognize this, this um, story as being a sacred story. Uh, one of the first at any rate. And and Thomas Berry was um, one of the first to realize that it would it would transform humans at a very deep level, and in his in his point of view that as we took in, as we took in and embraced this amazing discovery of cosmic evolution, as we took it in, we would become a different species. And he regarded humans as the species that reinvented itself as a new species without changing its anatomy. So this wouldn't be the first time, but it would certainly be one of the most significant moments of, of, of the human journey is this reinvention. So that's Thomas Berry. <laughs> um, you know, that, that idea of, of reinvention, I guess the, the question I want to ask you is because you illustrate how these principles uh, that can seem abstract uh, actually applied in your own life. And you often used or there there is a, a correlation between you understanding these expansive ideas or the, the way things uh, worked in the in the universe. Scientifically, you were able to apply them in your own life, for example. Um, in in the chapter, a multimillionaire in the basement of 1508 <laughs> North Cedar, you're taught you're you're kind of at a very low point in your life there, uh, dealing with heart issues and and managing it with alcohol, and uh, that you had this kind of um, a saving insight via your understanding of the asymmetry of the universe. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask you if you can just fill our audience in on what it, what the asymmetry of the universe is, but also this idea that what these seemingly abstract principles, how we can actually bring it to ground reality in our own life. Yeah. So the asymmetry, so we, the, the, uh, what, one of the, one of the um, what, widely accepted among scientists theories about the birth of the universe is that the, the universe began with a, a massive quantum fluctuation 
all of this matter came roaring out of uh, what is called the, the quantum vacuum. So it's a, it's, it's a very mysterious realm <clears throat> that is, generates, it generates matter. And it doesn't, it doesn't actually contain matter, but it generates matter. And if you understand that, you get a Nobel Prize in physics because we don't really understand it, but we work with it. So, but what, um, <laughs> so here's how the, it works that with every generation of matter, there's a generation of antimatter. Uh, so protons will emerge and antiprotons will emerge. But uh, what, what the current understanding is that there was a slight asymmetry <clears throat> in the birth of the universe. And I can, I can state it simply. For every billion protons that emerged, there was an extra one. So it was a billion plus one protons would emerge and a billion antiprotons would emerge at the same time. That meant that when the universe cooled a bit, the protons and the antiprotons all disappeared into light, leaving that one little proton, the asymmetrical proton. So the universe was, in, in a real sense then, a billion times greater than it is now in terms of a matter. And yet, and yet, that one proton gathering with the other asymmetric protons gave birth to all that we know, so that it was just a tiny, tiny sliver of the original universe. And uh, I, I just ended up calling that, <clears throat> I, I probably got this from someone else, but the creative remnant. So we have this vast universe, all this stuff is happening, and then it begins to disappear into light, except for this little tiny, tiny remnant remaining. And that, that, um, that idea also pertains to the history of life. So that with these the mass extinctions that take place, sometimes over 90% of the species are annihilated. But a tiny, tiny remnant brings forth the beauty that we see in the next era. So that I am um, in the in the in the moment you're talking about in the in the book. It was a moment when, even though things were collapsing around in me, I had confidence that there had to be some kind of creative remnant that that I would that I would I would somehow manage to make it through this collapse because the, some essence, some essential part uh, would make it through. And that, you know, so that, that, would, that was helpful for me, it kept me from a, a total collapse. But your question, Ross, your larger question, which is really worth asking is, <clears throat> how, can we, how can we learn from these scientific principles and apply them to our life? Now that, that I would say that, that that question would be one of the central ones of this new process of education in the next era of humanity. It would be looking for the, the human form of these cosmic principles we have discovered.
and so that there there would no there would not be an any easy um, explanation here. It will only come through humans investigating and 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 recording their experience about how we are becoming, like I say, the human form of cosmic dynamics. So uh, stay tuned for that answer. <laughs> we'll keep our eyes and ears open. Uh, we've got some really nice questions coming in from our audience. So great okay with you. Yeah. Okay. Let's attend to some of those. Uh, the first one I'm going to go to is from Dennis. Dennis says, is consciousness an emergent property of matter or is matter a manifestation of universal consciousness? <laughs> Let's start with a light question. It sounds like a friend of yours, Ross. <laughs> These questions are so, so important to ask. Um, <clears throat> you know, I um, I, I asked that question too, myself, and. Um, I obviously don't have an answer. Look at me. I'm I'm sort of waiting for something to come to me. Uh, I so that so the basic question would be this: Is is matter primary, and then consciousness emerges out of matter? And then the other question is: Is consciousness primary, and then matter emerges out of <clears throat> consciousness? That the second view. I think would be um, uh, 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 called um, Advaita Vedanta. I don't even know, but I mean, I think that in India that would be a one of the one of the powerful approaches to um, orienting oneself in uh, the universe. My my own thinking, which is just nothing like an answer, but my own thinking is that. <clears throat> That that mind and matter are are like two faces of the same thing. Um, I'll put it in the in terms that you asked, Dennis. That that matter and consciousness are are two faces of the same thing. So I I feel um, I, I feel comfortable with the idea that 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 all all of matter has some kind of a psychic dimension to it. Maybe very, very minimal, but nevertheless, um, it's still present there. Even in the even in the early universe, when the universe just consisted of of uh, elementary particles, I think the particles had. For instance, we think of the of the elementary particles is having an intrinsic spontaneity. They we we we've given up with the idea that there are that there are mathematical laws that are determining how the particles move. This is quantum physics. So how and then people will will try to understand what that means. And what I'm happy with is this: there is an intrinsic spontaneity even at the most elemental elemental level and that is 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 what part of what develops through time into more um 
refined forms of consciousness, you know, such as human consciousness. So I, I would, that would be my response, Dennis. I, I would, I would keep those two uh, together, uh, and and I wouldn't be able to uh, come down on the side of matter is primary or consciousness is primary. The universe is primary. That's the that's the best I can do. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for that question, Dennis. Um, there's one here from two people who are together uh, sharing this question, Sabina and Alex. And they say, we are very impressed by your insightful presentation. Thank you. Could you discuss your views about Fermi's paradox, please? Uh, now, I don't know what that is. So I, I don't know if I'm saying right. Fermi, F-E-R-M-I, Fermi's paradox. Maybe ask them to explain it because I'm, I'm not sure what they mean either. Oh, okay, okay. And I know it's a, I know it's a famous paradox, but just to make, can they sharpen the question? Sure, we'll ask them to do that. We'll come back to that one and we'll move on in the meantime. There's another one here about a, a specific hypothesis. This one's from Emil, so we'll see how this one goes. What do folks make of Roger Penrose's cyclic cosmos hypothesis? and its correlation with the eternal return. Are those things that are familiar to you? Yeah, yeah, Roger Penrose is, is one of the great physicists. Uh, he just received the Nobel Prize. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I've had, I've had the opportunity to talk to him about his theories. They, they're fascinating, for sure. Um, but they, they are a, a minority report. Uh, they're they're viewed as um, like intriguing and interesting, but uh, there isn't there isn't enough experimental evidence uh, to persuade scientists that uh, these are what we should focus on. I mean, he may be correct, but we we don't have empirical verification yet of of what he's proposing. Okay, thank you. Uh, nothing's come in yet from Sabine and Alex to clarify about Fermi's paradox. So we'll keep um, moving along here. Um, so there's a question from Sunfleck is the name, and it's an interesting one. Sunfleck says, do you think experiences can evolve through human history as ideas might evolve? Yeah, that is, um, that's, exactly what I think. And let me refer back to the book I mentioned, The History of Experience. So I would I would highly recommend you examine that. Uh, Wolfgang Leithold goes through the evolution of experience over 300,000 years. It's, it's a fascinating book to read. So yes, yes, experience is evolving for sure. Wonderful. And I know Jacob uh, put the name of that book and the author's name in the chat for those who are looking for it. Um, okay. There's a, oh, there's a note here from Sabina and Alex trying to clarify. So they say um, Enrico Fermi, when confronted with the likelihood of intelligent life in the universe asked, where is everybody? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, <clears throat> yeah, it's it's a real question, but but there's also the idea that 
the, the, the universe is developing a kind of like an oak tree develops. It, it goes through these various stages. And, and so the, the, the thought is that <clears throat> throughout the entire universe, there are, there are these rocky planets that have evolved into life and life into more advanced forms of consciousness. And the reason we haven't yet encountered them is simply the, the vast distances between, between the galaxies or even within the galaxy. Uh, we don't have, we don't have, I mean, we don't have enough evidence to conclude there is life elsewhere in the universe. But there's reason to believe that life is sprouting up throughout trillions of galaxies. Um, and they, one, of the, one of the hopes is that the James Webb Space Telescope, which was just launched, one of the hopes is that the James Webb Space Telescope will determine with some degree of certainty that there are living planets in the Milky Way. So it's a thrilling time to be alive in terms of this question that, that Fermi is asking about whether or not there are other living planets. <laughs> it's great to be alive. You, uh, I just, I watched your TED talk this week. Um, that I think it's just from five months ago, TEDx Berkeley. Uh, and you talk about the Webb telescope. So yeah. mentioning that for everybody, that if you want to learn more about that and what Brian's talking about on this specific topic, it, it's there. Um, uh, just look up. Yeah, I think, what was it called? The, the talk, do you remember? The third story of the universe. That's it. That's it. The third story of the universe. Yeah. Uh, thanks, everybody, for your great questions. We might have time to get to one more, but I'm going to interrupt to ask uh, an, another question that I wanted to ask you, Brian, which is the process of writing this book. It, there must have been a huge amount of self-reflection that went into this experience. Um, and uh, I'm wondering if when you look back on your life so far and this drive that you've had to understand the unfolding story of the universe. Do you have a personal sense or idea at this stage of where you think it all might be leading? Do you, like, is it just an, an infinite unfolding? Is there a, is there a, an end point or what is your perspective on that right now? <clears throat> well, I would say, first of all, that, um, um, you know, again, once again, Ross, it's a fabulous question, and I and I love responding to it. Um, but I, I think um, with all of these with all of these questions, we have to we have to remember our limitations. So we, you know, we don't we don't really know where the universe came from. I I gave you a theory, and I and I love that theory, but. It is, it's, it's highly tentative. And, and so that our origin remains mysterious. The, we, I talk about in the book about the origin being called the initial singularity of space time. It's called the singularity because our mathematics break down in trying to reach that, sing, that, that moment of birth. 
they fall apart so that we we have to remember that we don't know where we came from in a in a decided way and i think that the same is true about our movement forward we don't really know well, where we're headed not in a definitive way but so but given that uh admission of our limitations uh my sense is that we are we are headed toward in in the near term i mean i'm not i'm not talking about trillions of years from now i'm saying what if we can see a little bit into the future with some confidence and <clears throat> And, and I, I'm convinced that we are, we are moving toward a, a planetary mind, a planetary mind that is generated by uh, humans. So that, 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 that hum, humanity is, is, is I believe, um, moving into a deeper relationships, deeper relationships between individual humans, deeper relationships between various cultures, and out of that uh, deepening relationship is the emergence of something like um, a planetary mind. Uh, and this, this was called uh, a noosphere, a mind sphere uh, by uh, Teilhard de Chardin. And so that the story of the, in the future, storytellers in the future will, uh, will be saying, telling the story of Earth will say, Earth, Earth began as molten rock, the geosphere. And then the molten rock developed life, which spread around the planet, the biosphere. And then one form of, of life, Homo sapiens, developed conscious self-reflection and spread around the planet, the noosphere. So that, that and then what, um, what that will be like, um, Will will be a manifestation of the deepest dreams of humanity, and the example uh, that I give one of the deepest dreams of humanity is to know, to know what's going on, what's happening here, and the manifest the example I want to celebrate here is that of the James Webb Space Telescope. The James Webb Space Telescope was not created by any one human being or any team of human beings. All of the history of thought went into that development. So the James Webb Space Telescope was invented by the noosphere. And it's leading to a greater understanding of things. And so that would be, gives us a hint of what is coming as we deepen in our relationships with one another. Just a, a really beautiful concept for us to sit with. And I know people can check out the YouTube series, the story of the noosphere that you're a part of. Um, is there any other, any other directions you would point people if they would want to learn more about the work that you're doing? Well, um, there, there is this movie we made, A Journey of the Universe, um, and that that will be that will be free on on our um, our, our website storyoftheuniverse.org. We're just getting we're just putting it up now. It'll be there probably within a couple of weeks, but that it gives a 
it's it, it summarizes um, everything I know in in uh, 54 minutes. So I would I would recommend that for people that want to get a overall sketch, or you could get it now on on Amazon. But wait a couple of weeks and it's free. That's great. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we've been speaking to Brian Thomas Swim, PhD, uh, about his latest book, Cosmogenesis, an unveiling of the expanding universe. It's a, a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. Of course, you can get it at banyan.com or at the shop in person. Dr. Swim, really, really wonderful to speak to you. And thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for inviting me, Ross. It was really fun. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom. Our producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.